Welcome to Behind the Screen, a bonus interview series from Forward Movement, featuring author conversations with our managing editor, Rochelle Thompson. Hello, welcome to Behind the Screen. Today, our conversation is with Christopher Martin, whose new book, With Gladness, Answering God's Call in Our Everyday Lives, has just been released by Forward Movement. Welcome, Christopher. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing doing well, Rochelle. How about Good. you? I'm great. Thank you. So this is your second book. Your first book is The Restoration Project, and this book, With Gladness, um, builds on that work. Tell us a little bit about, about the book. Well, um, it's my second book with Forward Movement specifically, so we're, we're working together now for the second time. And um, although it's independent of the first book and can be read without having read it, uh, The Restoration Project is the name of that first book, um, it builds on that book and the uh, movement that that book is a part of. So I um, have this grand ambition of shifting the behavior and the structure of the Episcopal Church. So uh, what I... What I strive to do is to encourage people to get into small groups that encourage seven core Christian practices, beginning with the practice of 20 minutes a day of prayer. And arguably the most important of the seven core Christian practices is helping people figure out God's call in their life in some way. And um, so that was a part of what I was welcoming people into in the first book. And a few years ago, we had a conference of people who were getting into discipleship groups and trying to practice the seven core Christian practices. And we discovered that the, the, um, the practice of call was going nowhere. Uh, we broke into small groups at this conference. There were 40 people and talked about how the different practices were going on in our lives. And prayer, worship, service, scripture reading, generosity, were all going well. But when it came to call, people didn't know how to talk. Um, clergy largely thought that call happened when they felt called to be a priest and then that was it and lay people largely thought it didn't apply to them and this was despite you know lots of effort to try and teach and as you may know there's been lots of conversation about that in the church at large for a couple decades anyway and it just didn't seem to be landing and uh, so I took that experience of a, of a dead end and just started to with other people who are involved in the movement, really rethinking what do we mean by call and how can we address this in a different way so that it really lands in people's day-to-day -day life. And so it was out of that question that this book emerged. That's fantastic. Thank you for giving me the, giving us that background. When you say the word call um, in a Christian context, explain what you mean by that. I, I mean, your book obviously uh, explores the whole thing. But just when you say the word, uh, God is calling you to something, what do you mean by that in a Christian context? Well, we can mean a variety of things about them, but what, I, what I'm trying to do is reframe it from the big picture to the very small granular picture. So typically people talk about call and, and um, merge it with a sense of vocation, like what it is that you're supposed to do over the long term. And they think of call of like, oh, I'm supposed to up and go join a monastery or, you know, be a missionary in some foreign location or something like that. That's what a call is. And what I wanted to do in this book is to shift 
call to it being what we're doing in our day-to-day -day lives, moment by moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the words that I really play with and call a lot of attention to is the word work. Um, where, uh, for example, one of the gentle practices I encourage in the book is in a time of transition to say to yourself, like when you're walking up the stairs to go to your office or when you're driving from one place to another, to simply say to yourself, the work is very near you. So that, which means that whatever God calls you to do next is close to hand and that, you know, it will emerge when you turn the corner and actually enter into your office or when you park the car and go to the next thing. Something's going to be there. Maybe it's the thing that you expected. Maybe it's something else. But to start inviting into your consciousness that uh, God has sent you to do work and whatever that is, is close to hand. What I One of the things I love about the book is that this idea that the work doesn't have to be, you're not always talking about uh, helping at the soup kitchen, though that's important, or um, helping with the homeless, or folding bulletins at church, or but you're also talking about uh, folding clothes uh, and doing your laundry and washing dishes and cooking and uh, writing. This is all part of your work, and that you can experience God's presence in that process. Yeah, and in in our in our day by day interactions with other people, our call right. is very much in how we um, look at and are in relationship with, with, um, with people. Uh, in, in another of the chapters, I, I encourage the gentle practice of looking at human faces in a slightly different way using some powerful words. And um, I point out that the human faces that we encounter on any given day can fall into three categories. There are the known and familiar faces. So are we stuck in a rut there or can we see our, 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 our family and the people that we're working closely with, with fresh eyes? There are the unexpected faces, like you didn't expect to see so-and-so and how do you respond when all of a sudden you do? And that's the right. person that God has put right. in your life. And then there are all the anonymous faces that we very often see or <laughs> saw more often when we weren't in pandemic. And what kinds of thoughts are crossing our mind as we look at these human faces? Are they thoughts of uh, judgment and acquisition and that kind of thing? Or are they other kinds of thoughts, you know, more compassionate and generous? Right. Well, let me ask you, let's talk about the writing process. How did you take your own advice as you were responding to the call and the work of writing? Um, well, I made it a process of toggling back and forth between sharing ideas and conversations with other people who were bugged by the same question that I was, mm -hmm. and then sort of bringing it back to, the, to my desk and doing reading and reflecting and playing and um, capturing different kinds of thoughts. And then eventually, um, coming back to the people that I'd been in conversation with and saying, well, what if you started thinking about this word and going through your days and doing this kind of thing? How, what, what happens if you do that? And, mm -hmm. and then continuing to have conversation about like, oh, okay, um, if, if I look at a human face and think that they are a person, 
capital P, capital E, capital R, capital S, capital O, capital N, here's what I'm experiencing and here's how I see things differently. So um, part of what was important to me was to not only have it be sort of something that I'm developing as I'm sitting at my desk, but also something that I'm applying in my own life and walking alongside other people who are applying it too and seeing what happens to them. One of the interesting things was the first time I taught this as a whole series, there were five or six of us and there were six practices. And um, I asked at the end, a few weeks after I had taught the sequence of classes, well, you know, which one was most important to you? And we were evenly distributed among the practices, which I thought was a good sign. You know, it just right. says to me that different ones of these practices are going to hit different people different ways and be more powerful. And, um, and I really try hard in the book to give people an invitation to not make this a difficult or shameful process. The practices, I'm, I call them gentle practices because I, I want to be sure for people to know that like, it doesn't work for you, fine, you know? Um, one of the pieces of spiritual wisdom I repeat in the book is a great axiom of a, of a really powerful spiritual director from the early, British spiritual director from the early 20th century, Abbot John Chapman, who frequently said, pray as you can, don't try to pray as you can't. And I, I want the same ethos to happen here with these gentle practices, like give it a try, give it a couple tries. If it doesn't work, fine. Right. You know? Right. There's another one in the next chapter and maybe that one will work better. Yeah. One of the things I like about it is, is you and I were working together and as in that writer editor relationship, of course I read it several times and each time I would find, Oh, this is the practice that most speaks to me. And then the next time I'd be like, Oh, this is the practice that most speaks to me. And so I think one of the things that I enjoy about the book is that it's not uh, a book to be read once and put aside and not needed anymore. Because um, like scripture, it speaks to you it, when you're in different times and places in your life. And so you can keep coming back to it and finding and discovering something new about yourself in these practices. Well, Rochelle, one of the things I felt like we were working on together as the author and the editor was to try and get a style of writing where um, you can sit down and read a chapter in one sitting. It's only 10 or 12 pages long and hopefully get what the gentle practice is and how you might apply it to your own life. But then woven into the description is enough sort of scripture and book of common prayer and juicy quotes from theologians and poets and other writers that you know, there's there's stuff to go back to and read it again. I, and honestly, I still find that in the book, not so much from my own writing, but from the quotes that I that I've right. pulled. I mean, the reason the quotes are in there is because I find them really deep and compelling, and I want to keep going back to God. What was that that Kierkegaard said about the reflection of the ocean to the skies and how that's like a serene heart and the heavens? You know, that quote right. is awesome, and it's worth going back to again and again. I think. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about the writing process. You've written two books now. Um, mm -hmm. That's quite an accomplishment. A lot of people set out to, uh, with the hopes of writing a book. Tell me what your writing process is like. What do you do when you get stuck? Do you have a particular place that you like to write or, or a particular um, area or, or uh, time of day or, you know, what, what's your process like? Um, well, I am, I'm a lark. 
right? And th somebody who just gets up early. So I get up earlier than the rest of my family. And that's really precious time to me. And it's when I do my prayers. And when I'm in the process of, of writing a book, it's just that I, I transition from my prayers to the process of writing. I try and rearrange my schedule to make it so that I don't have to be in the office until like 10 o'clock or whatever, so that I really have time to, to dedicate to writing it and to just returning regularly. So it emerges out of prayer, it, 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 you know, I'm working it regularly. Um, I, I found that it's important to me to handwrite things um, ahead of time. So I've just got stacks of um, Fabriano and Moleskin books where I've just jotted things down and they're semi-organized and never quite as organized as I'd like. But that, that's usually sort of like the raw material. Um, and, you know, I, I collect quotes and thoughts and sentences and then um, eventually sort of come back and see what I've got and start putting it together and try and put it, in, put it into a document, you know, on the computer. But writing on the computer is less fun I think than handwriting. There's just something about putting pencil to the paper that I don't know is more creative feeling for me somehow. Yeah, I always think of writing as a it's both a very creative endeavor that requires discipline and to find that balance um, because you don't if you're writing to a deadline or you're writing to an editor's deadline, you don't always get the luxury of saying, well, I'm not inspired today. And yeah. so how do you, how do you balance that uh, creativity and responding to the muse with the necessity of timelines and delivering copy when, when you need to? I, in the case of uh, with gladness, um, I had the luxury of way more material than could fit into the book. Mm -hmm. So if, if something was stuck, I could just go in this other direction and, you know, share this thing rather than, than that thing. And the richness of material was both because I'd been sitting with it for a long time, but also because I'd been sharing it with other people. So if I wasn't telling the story about Judy, I could tell the story about Tanner or about myself. Um, so I, there was a lot of material to hand. So a lot of it was more about leaving things out than it was about, you know, not having enough. Mm -hmm. So that felt good. I also feel like because this was my second book, I could smell when something was going to be a dead end sooner than <laughs> I did the first time around. So right. I didn't spend as much time spinning my wheels and things that were never really going to go anywhere. I could tell earlier on, like, okay, time to let that one go. Right. <laughs> That's going right. nowhere. Right. Um, I'd say one other thing that is, is an important part of my writing process is it, when I do get stuck, and of course I do from time to time, um, my primary mode of exercise is walks and mm -hmm. long walks. Um, and so it's just to go on a long walk with a small book and a pencil in my pocket. Mm -hmm. and um, you know, not think about it for a while and then start chewing on it. And then if something emerges, a sentence or something like that, I can just jot it down in the middle of my walk. And then I've got some raw material by the time I go back to my desk. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, you talked about the stories that you share and I loved hearing about Judy and Tanner and, and the different people who have been walking this path with you. Do you have a story that didn't make it in but that you would like to share with listeners today? 
I do actually. Uh, funny you should ask. Um, so as I referenced earlier in the talk, um, one of the practices is looking at human faces in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. um, to looking at, at each time you look at a face to think that you are looking at a person and underneath that are two very powerful words that I share in the book. One of which, by the way, is the word theotropic, which was the primary, one of the primary um, avenues of discussion in the author interview I had yesterday. People were really intrigued by that word, theotropic. Uh, but it's a very deep and compelling word, and the practice is looking at human faces with this real intentionality. Well, Judy, right after reading, or right after learning of that practice from me in person, uh, went up to be with her sister in an island in the San Juan Islands in Washington state. And for this long weekend, she was with her sister and her sister's husband and a small circle of other people in this island where they weren't seeing very many other people. So she was really able to intentionally practice looking at human faces and thinking this is a person. Well, she left the island and went back to SeaTac Airport and walked into the, lo the lobby of the air airport and was utterly overwhelmed because she had been practicing looking at human faces and all of a sudden found that she just couldn't do it with that right. many human faces simultaneously. Like she just needed to look at the floor and she was just, yeah, overwhelmed. And um, boy, that totally makes sense to me. There's only so far that you can take these practices before it becomes a little bit too much. Right. That's a great story. Well, what do you hope readers will take away from this? When they finish reading the book, how do you hope that they're changed? I hope that they um, realize that God is with them in ordinary moments of, of their day and that they're moving through ordinary moments of their day with a growing awareness that Jesus is right there with them in that moment. And um, if one or two or three of these gentle practices become something that's woven into their day-to-day -day life, I hope that they, that, that that reality of God's presence is more, more palpable to them. That's terrific. Well, Christopher, I really appreciate your time today and um, have certainly enjoyed working with you on these two books and it's been wonderful to it's one of the blessings of my job is to get to work with with creative and talented and passionate people so thank you for your time is there anything that you'd want to add that we didn't talk about or that you well I also want to say thank you to you you were a wonderful editor to work with not just sort of crafting words and sentences but also but also thoughts and ways to share this with people so I think as people read the book, they should know that there was a, a very creative and helpful editing hand in it also. So thank oh, you for your Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Well, thank you for listening today. It's been great uh, talking with you, Christopher, today about your book, With Gladness, Answering God's Call in Our Everyday Lives, which is available through forwardmovement.org. And we look forward to your next book. Thank Take you. care. Thanks. Bye.